Hello and welcome to the Ace Records podcast with me, Pete Perfides. And today, I'm very excited to be welcoming a Mancunian legend, both within and beyond music, who's been actively engaged with music in his hometown since he was a teenager when he attended the mythical Bob Dylan concert at the Free Trade Hall, part of a tour he'd go on to write about in a book called Like the Night Revisited. At the end of the 1960s, he formed part of the legendary Manchester band Greasy Bear, whose eponymous album of exquisite harmonic folk rock was due to be released on Vertigo but finally saw the light of day in 2016. He's perhaps best known for his work with self-styled rock iconoclast Alberto Ilos Trios Paranoias, a period he keeps alive by way of his one-man ukulele show based on their fondly remembered canon. Other music fans may remember him for Jerry and the Holograms, the electronic duo which numbered Frank Zappa among their admirers. Or, if you're a similar age to me, there might be a section of your childhood memories devoted to his 1982 series, Teach Yourself Gibberish, in which he took us through the alphabet with a succession of sketches and songs. If you've read his 2008 memoir, When We Were Thin, you'll know that when it comes to the history of Manchester, and in particular Manchester music, this gentleman is is little short of a scholar and thus perfectly placed to curate a two-CD, 45-song anthology giving an intense flavour of the city's evolution as a hub of musical creativity. It's a CD that is called Manchester, a city united in music. It takes you all the way from Ewan McColl via the Hollies, the Toggery Five, Barclay James Harvest, 10CC, Sweet Sensation, Buzzcocks Magazine, The Freshies, Joy Division, The Stone Roses, The Smith, sort of, Happy Mondays, New Order, and right the way through to Oasis. And the man who put it all together is sitting patiently right opposite me. He's still thin. He's called C.P. Lee. Wow, Pete, I, I sound really good. Um, why why <laughs> would that be, I wonder? <laughs> I kind of forget all that stuff. Um, but it's great to be with you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Let's do, let's just start with the most recent thing that you've been up to, because I, I love this compilation. And um, Manchester City United in Music. It really d- does feel like you've packed a lot of, you know, kind of a, a very, what would ordinarily be a very long journey in a fairly short space of time. Well, uh, we have Ace to thank for this. I mean, A.D. Crosdale approached me, I think, about six years ago um, because he'd had an idea to do a compilation. Um, And I was uh, quite straightforward at the very beginning that I was fed up of anthologies of Manchester music that were purely and simply date from 1977 and Factory and uh, nothing happened before that because I thought there was a fantastic story to tell. Um, and AD agreed that uh, that the, the Manchester sound, the beat groups of the 60s, have been uh, kind of lost and pushed to one side. There is a Manchester sound of the 60s, and, you know, it really comes through with, with uh, a lot of the kind of bands you've sort of lined up next to each other. I guess it's, it's a sort of tougher sound than, than Liverpool, I think, in some ways, isn't it? Um, I, yeah, the Manchester groups were very hardcore R&B. I'm not sure if that really comes across here because we're getting the showcase numbers here that we use for singles that would be on major labels mm-hmm. um, but the stage shows that I used to go and see um, in clubs like the the Oasis and the Jigsaw and Heaven and Hell and whatnot, um, Freddie and the Dreamers were hardcore R&B rockers um, 
for instance. Uh, the Hollies, on the other hand, were a, a hardcore harmony band um, who had a residency at the Oasis, where in 1966, not only did I see Bob Dylan at the Free Trade Hall, but saw the Icantina Turner Review wow. um, standing at the front of the stage, being confirmed in my heterosexuality by the Iquettes. I can only put it that way. Uh, so, because Manchester had this had a fantastic person in the... Um, physical figure of a, a bloke called Roger Eagle who was a DJ um, and, and much more besides mm. uh, and Roger was the DJ at the Twisted Wheel um, from 1962 to 1966 and he had a very hardcore um black urban American music playlist mm. and he also specialised in, in what in those days were called whiteouts where you'd scrape the label off so nobody knew what exactly you were playing so you, you held it all and we were also very lucky because we had an American air base um, the second biggest American military institution outside of America wow. uh, at a place called Burton Wood so the weekends Liverpool and Manchester were flooded with American service people playing in bands swapping records, doing this, that and the other. So um, I like to refer to it sometimes as the Manchester Hip Canal. There was a lot of stuff flowing in. It is um, interesting because people know about Liverpool, you know, make that association between Liverpool being a port town. Yeah. And um, But it's not there, there isn't such a knowledge of how some of that stuff would have filtered through to Manchester. No, um, Liverpool sort of quite rightly because of the importance of the Beatles um, and that whole idea of a Mersey sound which uh, was a, a creation I think um, of Brian Epstein in a way, let's get all these Scouser groups and do this, that and the other the, but there was an amazing um, in, interrelationship between um, Manchester and Liverpool musicians, Billy J Kramer was from Liverpool, the Dakotas were from Manchester Right um, the, 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 you know, we'd be up and down the East Lanks Road all the time. Greasy Bear had a residency at O'Connor's Pub in Liverpool in 1969 through to 1970. Then in the 70s, that relationship was carried on by Roger Eagle again, who'd gone uh, to run a, a, a boxing place called The Stadium, which he put gigs on in Liverpool, and then he opened up Eric's Club. And so that was full of Manchester musicians and Liverpool musicians, and the Liverpool musicians played at the uh, Russell Club in Manchester and then at the uh, Hacienda. OK, let's backtrack to Roger at the Twisted Wheel. Mm. Would you have been... You would have been in your mid-teens, I guess, when that was in its pomp. Ah, what did, a glorious time to be alive. Did you make it along, or were you too yeah. young? You no, did. no, I, I, I started going to clubs when I was about 15. Um, so I did actually see in their heyday the Who, the Small Faces, the Action. Um, John Mayle was a Mancunian, and we we knew John, and we'd go, he played at the wheel a lot. Um, and at the same time, Roger was bringing in um, black R&B artists, Howling Wolf, Muddy Waters, Screaming Jay Hawkins. And by doing so, he would have been, presumably, he would have been exerting an influence on the other artists, the local artists. Absolutely. He would have been, and yeah. I guess John Mayle is a good example of someone who's very represented on this compilation by a fantastic track, Crawling Up a Hill, one of his own mm. compositions. Yeah. Um, I guess that's the case in point. Yeah. Um, a little known fact is that Alexis Corner, had a flat in Manchester um, because he regarded it as a, an epicentre and a gateway to like the north of England. So yeah. the band would live there half the week and then half the week in London. Um, so there was that interplay between Alexis and John, Roger. Um, there's a very 
a great book called uh, Sit Down and Listen to This, which is the biography of Roger Eagle written by Bill Sykes. Um, and Sit Down, Listen to This is what Roger would say. He had a gigantic speaker, mono-speaker cabinet. Um, and he'd literally force you into a chair and say, right, sit down, listen to this. And then he'd play whatever was on his mind at that particular time. Can you remember, have you got specific memories of maybe sort of dancing to particular tracks that the Twisted were? Just to give a flavour, you know, maybe to set a scene for me. Yeah, the wheel, um, Roger got bored with the wheel when Motown started charting. Um, and he did actually have a sign over the door that said nothing past 63. Um, what, pa- what passed? Oh, the year sixty-three. Yeah, since, since 1963. But he he was still playing um, new stuff by Muddy Waters. What was it like the problem with Motown charting? Um, he felt that it had become formulaic, and that great word, um, well, authenticity. So he was suddenly he got more into people like Richie Havens, um, and Creedence Clearwater Revival, and. Captain Beefheart and Magic Band. He was absolutely besotted it's, by. It's a mindset, isn't it? I guess if you're scratching out the titles of uh, yeah. of, of artists, yeah. then it goes hand in hand with that kind of mentality of um, just pushing on to kind of slightly more yeah. being the first. Get, for disco, mm-hmm. You know, t- I get, and it sounds like what you say. You know, just the sit down and listen to this. It's here's a man. I'm getting a picture of a man who kind of what he's really buzzy off is the moment of being the person that uh, turned was the first person to turn you on to that record. That was absolutely it. I mean, the reputation of Roger amongst musicians was uh, national musicians was phenomenal. I was in his flat one evening when Cream arrived. And they were playing in Manchester that night. And, they and came what would you do? Well, you, you're still a teenager. I mean, this yeah. must be quite awe-inspiring. Awe these might, these moments, try and put myself in your position. I think I'd be kind of almost a bit scared. Um, I was, I was overwhelmed at times by uh, the, the kind of people who uh, we were being introduced to. I mean, you, you, you shake hands with Howling Wolf, and you're 16. It's uh, Something's going on there. And you what's don't know what he what like? What's, what, what's it like to shake hands with Howling Wolf as a 16-year-old? Uh, um. uh, Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters had time for people because they were pressing the flesh because they were selling albums. You know, this is, I mean, meeting Captain Beefheart at 17 was probably the, uh, the highlight of my life. And then meeting him again in New York when I was there with the Albertos. We had the same rehearsal space. And I thought, well, he won't remember me. And he'd given me a harmonica in 1967. And I, I walked over and I said, Hi, Don, I bet you don't remember me. And he said, Of course I do. How is the harmonica? I go, What? Um, and it's a story I've heard from quite a few people that he had this amazing memory. And uh, he, he was phenomenal. Beefheart was uh, one of the kindest, so- gentlest, nicest people I've ever met. So would it have been, um, what, maybe like 68 or something, I guess, when you would have first met him? Um, let me think. Yeah, the tour was 68, yeah. Um, not 67, as I erroneously said before, because it's all a blur, you know. But the, that, that thing in Manchester was a, a, a great big melting pot for all these different kinds of music. You asked about what would we dance out at the wheel, and it was things like I Spy for the FBI. Um, right. Harlem Shuffle, did, yeah. d- d- which I suppose you could say was for It's only become 
stereotypical and formulaic now, but it was exciting. And but I mean, you know, that's time. the byproduct of being a great record. You know, you, yeah, yeah. you reach more, yeah. but you know, that's the, yeah. it's the natural conclusion. But, you know, it must be quite something to sort of be in a, you know, if we kind of unlearn everything we know about Harlem Shuffle and think back to how exciting that intro must have been when it was a yeah. new thing. Because that intro alone is a sort of an opportunity for everyone to just run over to the dance floor. Yeah. And then, you know, you're ready. It's like a, you know. Because be like careful running over to the, <laughs> to the dance floor in case you fell over the piles of handbags uh really <laughs> um the the art of cool of course was being personified and developed in manchester at that time you have to remember that the twisted wheel originally was the left wing coffee bar right um okay. and i knew a guy um who is actually on the photograph of one of the ace compilations uh, outside the Kona coffee bar. So the art of... Um, cool, sorry, go on. Well, he would go there on a Saturday morning wearing a beret and drink coffee while pretending to read a copy of Le Figaro. And he couldn't read a word of French. He just thought it looked cool. And smoking galvas. So that was the European mod idea in the early 60s. And it was it was it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. This idea, and it, mm. it kind of it sort of informed, if not directly, some of the music that people were making. Certainly, the attitude that you even hear in the kind of folk and blues, jazz guitar people like mm. Bert Jansch and John Renborn, and even Nick Nick, Nick Drake's mm. early persona was that of a sort of left the, bank. There's bohemian. not a lot to separate them at that time. No. and uh, that, uh, again, that idea of cool would be. Quite, one was quite restricted in the kind of clothing you could buy. Yeah. Um, and jeans were very hard to come by. Um, the idea, the mod idea of suits and this, that, and the other. Um, you would see Bert Jansch in a suit, you know, John Renborn in a suit. Right, yeah. Um, and then you get somebody like the John Dummer band, because um, you're starting to get that crossover into a rock personification or electrifying the blues a lot more. Um, it's interesting that you said I didn't know that about Alexis Corner having a flat in Manchester because yeah. it immediately creates a sort of um, a kind of cultural hotline between Soho and Manchester, yeah, yeah. which enriches both scenes. Yeah, I mean, uh, Roger went on to manage Greasy Bear in sixty. We did begin in sixty-seven as a duo, and he managed us. He took us to the Flamingo one night in right. London. Yeah. Um, and we were seeing um, some of the legendary people that were on the scene there, and all of everybody was in a state of transition, and not quite knowing which way to go. And some of them, be, the, like the hard mods and the cool mods, um, who become the, the cool mods become hippies because they like the clothes, yeah. and the hard mods kind of retreat into uh, into what becomes uh, Northern Soul um, a couple of years later. And the wheel moves premises, and it kind of facilitates that change. And, if the, and the bands on that first disc, in a way, show that. And if the sound of your uh, band, Greasy Bear, is anything to go by, am I to assume that you kind of lurched slightly more in a hippie direction? Oh, uh, totally. Um, we were described, if, if you know Manchester at all, we were known as Didsbury's answer to the Grateful Dead. Uh, and we lived in a commune. Um, and we were big mates with Mick Farron and the IT people in London and we did benefit concerts for the White Panthers and all this kind of thing. And what was the what was the appeal of that for you? What was it about that sort of countercultural scene that kind of spoke to you that made you want to be a participant in it? I look upon it now at the age of 70 as authenticity again. You know, cutting edge, we're going to be different. Um, 
so to, to my regret, we kind of sneer at some of the bands that were still around that, that, that had made a transition to playing White Soul, as it were. What, who were you thinking of? Um, uh, ooh, well, I wouldn't name names. Um, thinking of people in Manchester, um, off the top of my head, uh, the, the Chipmunks were a local band who got, got a brass player or a saxophone right, okay. player and then they'd cover... Um, so, but it, it, you know, soul is what people were. Some people wanted to listen to, and mm. at the same time, Rogers now opened the Magic Village, which, as, as, by, as its name implies, is a psychedelic dungeon. Mm. Um, and he's putting on Pink Floyd, Cat Stevens, uh, Third Ear Band, all that kind of thing. And, and you, we were part of that parcel. We played with Country Joe and the Fish in 1969. In fact, I'm playing in July with Bruce Bartol from uh, Country Joe. In a, uh, in, in a very different incarnation. Yeah. Um, so I do tours with him and Barry Melton every now and again. Um, <laughs> where somebody in Sheffield describes it as uh, relive the 60s through uh, amusing anecdotes and song. But our amusing anecdote is that Bruce and I met 50 years ago in a cellar of Roger Eagle's house in Didsbury um, when he was informally Fat Harry escaping the draft coming over here right so, okay so you have that that link was uh, again with american music it's quite fascinating there but you've got the, granny the, takes a trip yeah i was just about yeah. to say granny takes yeah. a trip which yeah. let's talk, talk this is an amazing track i hadn't heard it before um listening to this come i know the name of course granny takes a trip because mm. it's it was um the name of what it was an was it an all-nighter uh, it was clothes emporium that's right, uh, yes. On the King's Road, yeah. which had a massive mural outside. And it was one of the first uh, psychedelic boutiques um, <laughs> that wasn't near um, the centre. It wasn't near Oxford Street. Right, so, OK. Um, the the Purple it, Gang were sort of who, who sang, who, who performed that track, kind of came from, came from a folk background. Yeah. Um, um, Joe Boyd produced... Were they, they were American, right? No. No. They're, they're from Manchester. Sorry. And they were a, they were a kind of local jug band. Of course they will. It's a Manchester compilation. So. Well, that, that helps. Um, but <laughs> the, the Joe Boyd involved. Joe Boyd yeah. heard them and thought, oh, this is great. And somehow Chris Beard um, had written Granny Takes a Trip. Um, and it's an absolutely outstanding track. Um, and I mean, it also sums up a lot of what happened to Manchester music in that it immediately gets banned, so they go it nowhere. Did, yeah. Well, it's got what is it? Is it a washboard that you can hear on it? It sounds some yeah. Oh, the instrumentation, kazoo's, washboards, uh, a honky tonk piano. Would be. I mean, as a psychedelic song that has an uh, uses instruments that you just don't associate with psychedelia, and yet it, it completely sounds psychedelic. Yeah, it's, it's well, they played the twenty four hour technical a dream right. and. Uh, Sid Barrett gave them um, a couple of numbers to do that never managed to see the light of day. Um, and they were the darlings of the underground for about six weeks. Um, well, Sid Barrett had a sort of jug band history, didn't he, prior yeah, to joining? Yeah, jug, jug band blues, yeah. which was the last track I think Sid did with um, the Floyd. Um, fantastic stuff. So he would have he'd probably saw some affinity with them. And, and Paul McCartney was uh, boosting them around town he thought they were going to be big um there's a whole i think the i just have to consult the notes here for a moment thank you um yeah you've got the mockingbirds oh well, well the mockingbirds is another story because yeah no a, which i'll come on we've kind of gone ahead yeah. of ourselves slightly um yeah. i mean barclay james harvest greasy bear hmm. all are all um the cousins of the purple gang but we've gone that little step further 
Oh, right, okay. Mm. Well, I was going to ask you before, we will go back a little bit, but yeah, while, we're, yeah. while we're in this little period of time, mm. end of the 60s, we talked about Granny Takes a Trip. It was a record that was banned, so it was thwarted. And, of course, another record that was thwarted was the album that you made with Greasy Bear because yeah. you were signed to Vertigo, but the record didn't really come out until decades later. Yeah. What was what happened there? Um, there was a, a, a coup at um, Phillips, and the guy who produced us, um, who'd been working with uh, Fairport Convention, which is quite evident from the, the way the, the music's going on the album, um, was no longer in favour. And he, he was trying to run independent deals with them. And right. it became Vertigo took over Phillips, Phillips Vertigo, rather than what this guy was trying to do. Uh, but we did have a reputation of being hardcore, um, yippie, supporters and we had a song which i don't know if i can mention on the uh, podcast but it was uh, it was enough to get um banned in quite a few places this is a time when to use a four-letter word on stage was considered quite dangerous yeah. and i remember going to an al stewart al stewart folk singer great guy did bed sister images and he was playing at the free trade hall and there was a police constable at the side of the stage because he had a line that went in bed sister images it became um less and less like loving and more and more like right. and the policeman was waiting to arrest him if he used that line you know so uh and presumably the mere presence of a policeman had stopped him from doing so yeah yeah um but we were out there pretending to roll five foot long joints um being quite absolutely outrageous and I think our reputation preceded us and so consequently the album didn't come out and got shelved until 2016 <laughs> so, uh, but if anybody comes and sees Just One Alberto, my live show I do perform the song in question that, Well the track uh, on here, Geordie is just uh, absolutely beautiful I was, I was kind of not prepared for the, just the sort of um, it's just such an incredible arrangement the harmonies are astounding it's a, it's a real highlight of this compilation well, um, thank you. Um, it's certainly that was one direction we were going in. We we fell in love with harmonies, um, and seemed to be synchronicity with the bands that were emerging in America at the time. Yeah, um, like the Birds were beginning to go that way. Mm. The Sweetheart of the Rodeo. So we the whole album is half. Here we go. Half the fifty percent the band, fifty percent the birds, and fifty percent fairports. So the reason that I left was because I wanted to do more um, English folk stuff, right? Okay. Um, and it was going more and more into country hoedown stuff, and that was like, oh, okay, well I'll go and do something else, which bizarrely was to do. Uh, comedy <laughs> okay. well, we'll, folk, we'll come on to that but while we're in this kind of little kind of time frame mm. I just want to kind of scoot backwards slightly to some of the tracks that precede it on, on the first CD um, here and um, and really going back to what you said about Manchester having a sort of firmer R&B base and, and one amazing track I think that really um, highlights that is I'm Gonna Jump by the Toggery Five yeah yeah who knew? I certainly didn't know that one of their singers was uh, Paul Young, Paul who Young, would go yeah. on to be the singer in Sad Cafe. Yeah. Um, and I, did he have something to do also with Mike and the Mechanics as well? At some yeah, point? he was briefly, yeah. 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 Um, Paul was another of those uh, legendary Mancunians who never quite made it. 
Um, but it was always that. And Young and Renshaw as well were, were formidable. Uh, but the Togri 5 should have won Ready Steady Beat Group. There was a competition on TV. There was Ready Steady Win? Was Ready that Steady Win, yeah. that would be yeah. it. Um, and they was robbed, absolutely robbed. So people were dumbstruck in, in the north that it's they hadn't a, won. The song's amazing. It's yeah. a, really, Shades of Them, Van Morrison's yeah. Them, yeah. that has that real rough, kind of slightly mm. punky quality about it. Well, you get bands like the St. Louis Union as well, yeah. that, um, who or Dave Tomlinson, who's a keyboard player, is sort of a direct bloodline to the very tip of the now, you know, because he goes into magazine, he Dave goes Formula. into Vizard. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they, at their peak, were that same kind of very, very punchy, um, hard-hitting, hard, hard mod uh, yeah. playing. They were great mod bands, Togri 5 and the, the Union. And... Um yeah, I mean, there's so many, so so many interesting stories uh, attached to this time of singers who would, you know, maybe this wasn't their time, but obviously they would go on to have their moment. And Elkie Brooks being another case in point. Mm. Nothing left to do but cry on here. Such a massive song. Um, yeah. the, the arrangements. I gather that you used to buy cakes from her dad. <laughs> yeah, but book, bookbinders uh, patisserie um, had a little chain of uh, bakers, and you could get bagels or you could get um, cream cakes. And we would go on a Saturday morning when I was about fifteen hang out in West Didsbury at uh, one of the bookbinder outlets on the off chance that she might come in which is quite stupid it's not going to happen did she it? not no, no no but no. it's the same thing that made me uh, stand outside the free trade hall in the rain in the afternoon hoping Bob Dylan might walk by <laughs> which oddly is what did happen to um, Graham Nash um, earlier when he stood He'd been to see the uh, Everly Brothers in concert at the Free Trade Hall. Yeah. He, he ran uh, with Alan to uh, the Midland Hotel and right. stood thinking, they're going to come, they're going to come. And they they were hours because they'd gone off clubbing it. And they waited until two in the morning. And they were just going to leave and the Everly Brothers came back and said, whoa, hey. And they went, oh, yeah, we're big fans. And they said, well, come to our room, let's talk. And they were there till six in the morning talking. So what year? Well, this is, this is about sixty-two, so. something like that. Sixty-one, sixty-two. It's amazing. Yeah, and, and fa- of course, fantastic. And of course, you know, when you thought, you know, that obviously, you know, the 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 Everly's harmonies are in the sort of musical DNA of the Hollies. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, it's it's great. The 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 other link in that is uh, with Graham Goldman. In, via the Mockingbirds yeah. and Ten CC and, and writing stuff for the, for, for everybody, um, a, a story that Ace have covered also with their Graham Goldman set, which is quite absolutely yeah. No, I, I interviewed him in sort of in connection with that, but you know he's a brilliant songwriter, and Manchester's had lots and lots of brilliant songwriters. And we start the the set with uh, Ewan McCall, "Dirty Old Town," which yeah. is like. I have to say, when I was a lecturer, I had a lot of students who thought that they argued with me that it was about Dublin because the Pogues had done it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I used to take great delight in showing them that it was actually written in the fifties about Salford. You know. Well, so, you know, once the Dubliners had done it, it kind of sounded like it was about Dublin. But yeah. I guess, um, but that's the beauty. Yeah. That's the beauty of the song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great, it's a good uh, establishing shot. Um, as we go towards the end of uh, the CD, we get this. I'm glad you put uh, Sweet Sensation, Mr. Cool, in there because 
They're, they're, I think they're kind of an important band because they were slightly ahead of the curve because in the late yeah. 70s you had a lot of um, sort of second generation um, young black British mm -hmm. musicians yeah. kind of really making an impact on the charts. Sweet Sensation was the first, really, weren't they? Or among the of hot chocolate. They were among the, 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 the yeah the front runners of uh, the, the the new black British bands. Mm. Um, the, the interesting thing is, if you'd gone to the wheel in '63, it was um, a black and white audience, and it was very much like that even unto '65, and then the diversification began and there's a, there's a kind of a, a racial split and I, I never knew what caused it um, people were very happy to be dancing together to black artists to white artists um, and it, it seemed to happen worldwide that uh, uh, the guy wrote a very interesting book called The Beatles Killed Rock and Roll um, which which said that, that that began to segregate audiences and I'd, I'd have to go into the book a lot more to explain sure, how yeah. that worked. But um, it's an interesting idea. But the audiences were very mixed. And it was great that Sweet Sensation came along and we're like, I'm pulling that back together. And uh, some some factory acts as well. Um, Roots Maneuver and whatnot. Not Roots Maneuver. But oh. the, that uh, rappers ratio. and things were, were emerging. Right, yeah. Um, a certain ratio were sort of... Um, yeah. Uh, and also, of course, Marcel King also put yes. out a brilliant track. Yeah. for Fiago. Um, Yago were great, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. So you, it begins to happen again in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but in a way, you know, we could have done a, a, a 10 CD set and had a lot more people on it, which would have been great. But um, I think what AD and I wanted to do was a, an introduction to all these different strands with a, a, a major salute in the first CD to, to where it began. Okay. Taking us into the second CD, which is where it was going to go. And the, there's the whole sort of. Um, the whole atmosphere of the second CD is very different. It, tell, mm. it tells a kind of a different story in a way. Yeah. And uh, I guess it sort of, um, it it retrenches Manchester's importance in the emerging, I mean, yeah, but, but punk in Manchester was a very, sort of a very different beast, wasn't it, to punk in London? Yeah, uh, Pete Shelley, bless him, had a, a great analogy, which he said it like, like the marsupials in Australia, it grew and developed in its own way, untouched by London. Um, and it was true. I mean, the, the fashion was completely different because, uh, you know, we couldn't go to. Well, I could go to seditionaries because I was touring around and working right. out of London a lot. But your average kid would go and buy stuff from Oxfam and right. paint paint on it or cut it up or do whatever. Um, also, the most important thing is the fact that um, you get the DIY ethos yeah. comes in um, and it's that bringing it all back home yeah. now all of those bands on the first CD have to go to London to record yeah. until 10cc um, build strawberry yeah. um, and there were little studios like Arrow and whatnot, Pluto that were around but nobody had thought to do right you, you can't make a record in there you can do an advert jingle or a background for me for TV show um, and it's I Richard Boone, I think, is probably the one majorly responsible for that, the manager of Buzzcocks. Yeah. Um, principally out of stinginess. Really? You know, um, they'd found out that you could get 500 uh, records pressed. And, uh, all right, well, how do you make a record? Now, here's the, here's the full story, which I 
that so. isn't in the note. Well, it is. It is in the notes a bit. Um, in the 19, 1966, an Act of Parliament was passed to close down Manchester beat clubs. An Act of Parliament, no what, less. What, why specifically Manchester? Because we had a mad chief constable called Mackay, who uh, was terrified that blacks were mixing with whites. And that white slavery was taking place and poor young white girls were being drugged and put on ships and taken to North Africa and whatnot. And he conducted this uh, underground campaign um, which resulted... They were doing raids on clubs. And when you look at what they get, they get like three kids with black bombers or something like that. And it's terrible, terrible drugs. Um, And he was able to convince enough MPs that that Manchester had this terrible problem and they shut down they they changed all the rules so because the wheel carries on um, and the Magic Village carries on but as a working musician by 1967 I could work every night of the week by 1968 I could work maybe three nights a week and it got worse as it reached the 70s and so there was a meeting uh, in 1972 and we formed a workers' cooperative called Music Force, yeah. right? Now, Music Force was, was very left-wing, very socialist. Um, but they got an office, and they the guy who manned the office was Martin Hannett. Um, and they did PA hire, van hire, posters printed. Um, they began to uh, resurrect gigs over pubs and things like that. They created their own circuit. Um and it was it was owned by all the groups. Wow. Now, when when Pete and Howard wanted to put the Sex Pistols on, um, they went to Music Force to ask how to do it. And Martin said, "There's this little room in the Free Trade Hall. You can hire that. By the way, we can do the PA. Um, and how, who's doing your posters?" And they said, "Well, we're doing our own." But it was through that that, that facilitated that gig in 1976. Um, that begins that whole punk explosion and the DIY thing. It's interesting because it's a real this kind of self-starting momentum mm. that had such a colossal influence. It almost feels like a dry run in a way for what Tony Tony Wilson would go on to do. Yeah, later well, on. The, the the thing that spins off from the Sex Pistols at the Lesser Free Trade Hall is Slaughter and the Dogs, who were then spotted by um, the guy who put posters up everywhere, Superfly a guy called Tosh, Tosh Ryan and he and Martin decided to start a record label which was Rabid Records and they'd done a couple of releases by the time um, Tony went round with the film crew to do a documentary about how to start a record label <laughs> um, and from that um, you get Factory which right. I produced the first first side of the uh, ever released John Dowie side of the double EP Really? So that's my link with that. Well, yeah. you were, so you were right in the thick of things at this point because at this point, um, yeah, your own you were you were touring and recording with Alberto Lostrius mm. Paranoia, yeah, um, which didn't originally start as a as a sort of musical enterprise, did it? No, we were doing comedy scripts. We thought there was room for. Uh, uh, alternative comedy, but it hadn't been invented yet. So uh, we we were we were doing things like um, Red Clydeside benefits for anti trident and stuff like that. And then um, we said, oh, for a joke, let's do a spoof rock gig. And we wrote 
a handful of songs and we got all our mates as musicians and where was the gig it was in a, a building called the squat which is very important in the history of Manchester music. Uh, in the mid-70s, there'd been a student occupation of Manchester University. They were going to knock down the old music college. Um, and they said, why? And they said, it's going to be a car park. And they go, right, well, let us have it. And they gave it to the students' union. And it became rehearsal rooms um, and a venue. And it's where the Fall first played. Um, Joy Division played there. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? What, what, uh, it's hard to sort of maybe convey to people who haven't read about it or weren't there. But the the sort of that's sort of the thing about the counterculture in the late sixties and early seventies was that this the sort of demarcations between different you know sort of music and comedy mm. and theatre. Yeah. They were they. It all got a bit fuzzy at this point, didn't it? Yeah, um, but, but principally because there were no maps. It was uncharted territory. Um, so you, I used. To, I found a great link as I've got older between the folk clubs of the sixties and the punk gigs of the seventies. Is that the folk clubs allowed people to say, "I can't sing, but can I get up and do a poem I've written?" So I first see John Cooper Clark about nineteen sixty nine in the Nags Head in Market Street in town doing poetry in a folk club 69 yeah yeah wow. um and then the next time john appears he's uh he's uh, he's doing a rabid fundraiser or this that and the other um and of course he, he's then put with the house band the the which is john scott steve hopkins and uh, tony turner and people like that um who become cycle sluts who and John of course becomes Jerry in the holograms and it, it it's incredibly incestuous. Your first time on a stage was at a folk club as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Is it right that you were trying to impress a girl? Is this a yeah? Problem? I was I was in love with a willowy blonde um, who was a sixth former and I, I wasn't. And somebody said she's into folk music, so uh, I was like, oh all right, okay. I did a quick crash course in folk music. Um, <laughs> Realised that. Uh, the most authentic folk singers didn't play an instrument, which was great because I didn't have one. Uh, and I got up in uh, a local folk club on the off chance that she'd be there. And uh, after the first line of the song, I completely dried, couldn't remember anything. Um, then pulled something out of the hat. Um, and that was it. I thought, oh, wow, was she there? Well, she was there. She turned up later on, I think, and was like, what, what she, are you doing here? What, she missed you? She turned up with a boyfriend. That was very annoying. Oh. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, years later, I managed to marry another willowy blonde, so that was great. Oh. Um, but she doesn't like folk music, so that's, that's, that's a curse of so my um, Yeah, folk music. I was 14 when I first sang in a club. Um, and then I was very rapidly 15 the year after and able um, with a judicious application of Old Spice aftershave and the deft manoeuvring of a pipe managed to look 16. So uh, <laughs> so at 16 I could get into any club in town because that was the age limit was 16, yeah. which is one of the reasons Mackay wanted to close them down because it was young kids who were going into them because they didn't sell alcohol. Right, right. You okay. could open a club in this room we're in now um, just by charging membership. So they charged one and sixpence or something like that for a year's membership of the Twisted Wheel or wherever. Um, and you'd put a little stage over there, have a band on, and people would come in. And, and because a, they just sold coffee or Coca-Cola, that was it. You didn't need a licence. Didn't even need a music licence. Well, it's, it's similar to the, you know, the, 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 scene, the scene in, again, the kind of folk and jazz scene in the 60s. Mm. 
I think people forget what a coffee-based scene it was. Yeah. And we kind yeah. of almost kind of re, we re-edit our kind of our memories to sort of put alcohol in situations where it wasn't there. Yes, this is very true. Um, it, w- it was a coffee-driven... <laughs> coffee driven, oh, Maybe that's why it went on till late in the night. I well, so, so um, certainly think, with a, definitely in Soho, that was, there was a real... You know, because these mm. these coffee machines that were kind of shiny and metallic and I guess you correct me if I'm wrong but I would imagine to a teenager in the early 60s they would have almost looked like spaceships or something it was incredibly hip it was very American and America is definitely what we aspired to yeah um, because it represented freedom of a sort very nebulous idea of freedom yeah um and it was great. You you go to a club, and this thing in the corner doing frothy <laughs> coffee and whatnot um, was truly remarkable. And and, and to get that um, Ace, I think it was an Ace record compilation with the Kona coffee bar picture. Right. Is it called Mod? Uh, Modernists. Um, and those be. four four guys and the two girls stood outside the Kona coffee bar because hmm. the Kona was was where the St. Louis Union would hang out hmm. there was a little performance space downstairs that you could occasionally get to and it was right next door to the CND offices um, so it was this little strip of Manchester that was very very hip very uh, the beginning of that alternative it was the first place I saw International Times on sale in Manchester yeah I mean it um, is interesting isn't it because that sort of that the sort of uh, you can see the the sort of connecting tissue between this quite regimented sort of sartorially disciplined scene which was mod uh, kind of evolving into something that Okay, if it was regimented and disciplined, it was it was a different kind of regimented and disciplined, and the kind yeah. of the countercultural thing. But the, as you say, the countercultural thing is this this ethos of we can make our own records. Um, also, we can publish our own Samizdat magazines. Um, so you you've got Sniffing Glue here in London. Uh, down there, we've got Shy Talk, and uh, you get writers emerge from that, like Paul Morley, Mick Middles. Um, who are now, you know, nationally, internationally acknowledged authors and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so you had that to disseminate information. City Fund magazine comes out at that point as well um, to disseminate the information, share information. Where yeah. are the gigs? Where can you go and practice? Where? Who is T.J. Davidson? Where is his rehearsal room? This kind of thing, um, and it all facilitates. Um, the, the older musicians are showing the younger musicians how to do things. Uh, Martin Hannett being the, I think, the principal character in that section. Again, you know, Manchester, again, that's very different to London, isn't it? Where I think people took the year zero ethos very seriously. And if mm. at least if they were sort of um, influenced by things that happened prior to the mid-70s, it, mm. it, it seemed that you were better off pretending that you weren't. Whereas... Maybe it wasn't so extreme. Um, I th- yeah, uh, people like John the Postman, the legendary John the Postman, um, used to go and see Blue Oyster Cult, and uh, but then they'd see Lou Reed as well, you know, at the Free Trade Hall. And their their music tastes are incredibly eclectic. Um, and I remember John Lydon doing. Um, his top 10 records on, on LBC or something like that, Capital Radio. And it was a complete mixture of, yeah. of stuff. And all that Never Trust a Hippie and whatnot, I thought I, which was a, 
a good joke yeah. um, was not true in terms of the music that they, 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 those hardcore punks were listening to Dr. Ali Montado and Captain Beefheart absolutely yeah most bizarre and strange things um, and Tony Wilson appears at this point in the late 70s 1980 uh, with Factory um, and again broadens that ethos out once more into a kind of art aesthetic right um, that the punk DIY ethos. Richard Boone's cover of um, Spiral Scratch based on Malevich's White on White. Who's going to get that joke? Uh, but it, eventually but, they would. But, but for uh, the five people that do, it's just, yeah, yeah, and of course, they'll tell super. other people. And that's yeah. it's a kind of before we talked about influencers, uh, yeah. you know, that's how things were disseminated. And where did you stand in relation to all of this? You're a musician that already did have a pedigree, and you were doing something that really couldn't really be categorised in, in with. Although, of course, the song that you've got on this compilation, "Gobbin on Life," is um, is certainly um, references. And it was on Stiff Records, and right. it was produced by Nick Lowe, right. so its pedigree is uh, is impeccable yes. in, in that respect. Um, also, I am told that. Uh, quite a few punks for even unto this very day thought it was real uh, but it was in fact a parody and it was, it was done for a stage show um, that we hastily concocted um, now it makes it sound terribly manufactured it wasn't I thought it was, there were several incidents going on a woman a newsreader in America shot herself live on air and snuff videos had appeared and I thought you know what sells what makes bands perennially popular oh the singer dies or yeah. so let's put it all together and kill the singer on stage right so we did this spoof show called snuff rock and it it suddenly turned into a huge hit um and we were on at the royal court theater in london we transferred to the roundhouse and we had a residency there and uh the songs which were in the snuff rock section in the second half were these four numbers that we did and uh our managers black blackhill said oh let's put let's put it out on stiff and I was in stiff were underneath Blackhill, physically underneath in the building. So that's why I was Elvis Costello for a day. But that's another story. <laughs> well, we'll come back to that. But um, I mean, conceptually, what you were doing wasn't too different to what sort of the punk, you know, punk bands in America, like the Tubes in particular, I'm thinking of, who were yeah. playing with similar ideas of sort of, you know, apparently finishing yourself off on stage and all that kind of business. Were you aware that there were bands in America who were sort of no we'd heard heard of them we heard of them in 1977 I think um and there's always rivalry between um comedy bands for want of a better word um (laughs) like the fabulous poodles were our our main rivals in this country um and in a in a way deaf school when we started Um, really yeah because uh and, and yet we all knew one another, but it was, and they weren't a comedy band per se, but they had a, a persona that, that was a bit like the Curzel Flyers mm. uh, in this emerging pub rock concept. We were more involved with pub rock. Mm. Um, uh, we were, and then of course Dave Robinson's come from the Hope and Anchor, and with Jake sets up Stiff, and as it, we were physically in bed with Stiff, right? Uh, literally walked through their office to leave our office. Right. So we were there right at the very beginning and knew the damned and everybody. And yeah. Snuff Rock, I read somewhere about Snuff Rock that you took it to America. Mm. And um, yeah. 
it sort of the, the the joke started to kind of slightly wear thin, at least upon its practitioners, because um, by well, that time John Lennon had well, just as we'd started, um, and John Lennon was coming to see the show the week after he was shot, and we took a break, and. Um, they said, right, we're going to reopen the show in three weeks' time, do some radio ads. So this is the radio ad that went, Hi there, my name's John Lennon, and if I were alive today, I'd go and see Sleek by Alberto E. Lost And that was it. We were run out of town, and uh, I got death threats. <laughs> Whose idea was the advert? Mine, of course. <laughs> we had another one, which was, Meanwhile, there's a seance in Eastbourne. Come in if you are there. Ooh, we have a spirit here called Sid, Sid Vicious, who gob once for yes and twice for no. And uh, We just did these famous dead rock star parodies and that was it. We were finished. <laughs> Malcolm McLaren would have approved, surely. Sure, indeed, he would. Now, the great thing about Sleep was in order to get to America, we were funded uh, by the police, by the Pink Floyd and by the Clash. 10,000 quid each. How come? That's how much people liked us. So. And how did you how, 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 how did you get this money? How did that, uh, would you just ask them or how, how, uh, how would it work? Yeah, well, we said we're going to put the show on in America. We need backers. And everybody had seen the producers. <laughs> so, Amazing. So the, uh, Joe Strummer, uh, who we knew in the 101ers, because mm. we... we squatted in the, when we were in London we stayed in that squat right um, so we'd known Joe from for, for ages before wasn't even Joe then um, and Time and Dog and people like that um, and he was always at Alberto's gigs and uh, the police were just very friendly with uh, they, we gave them their first support tour um, people who supported the Albertos on tour because we were great we had uh, Blondie uh, the Stranglers, uh, the Police, and uh, all these people. What were they like? What were they, did you were you able to sort of tell? Was it obvious which ones would sort of go on to much bigger things, and or, or, or did any surprise you? No, I think we we always like to help out up and coming talent. And when we first started touring, and people we'd be doing support, um, the only people who ever treated us with any respect were Hawkwind. And we swore that when we were topping bills and had support acts on a tour, we would give them the same respect that we'd had off Hawkwind. And that was what we did. Um, and so you we, the and we picked people personally because we really liked what they were doing. The only one who didn't make it was Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians, as it was then, okay. who we thought were going to be huge. There's time yet. He's still out there. He's still, yeah, he's still out there, but uh, he's never quite got to the giddy heights. It's funny though, isn't it? Because if I think, if I think, if the police were opening for me in what 1978 or something, mm. maybe earlier, I yeah. don't think, without the benefit, without the hindsight of having seen how huge they went on to become, I wouldn't necessarily think that that's a band that's going to be big. Thought they were great songwriters, yeah. and uh, every, every song was uh, um, was good. Um, the same with Blondie as well, and we'd known that. Well, we in New York we used to hang out with them, yeah. Because um, I'd, I'd been, I'd been going backwards and forwards to New York, getting the show sorted out there. So uh, I, I was in the in with a strange crew at the Mud Club with uh, people always speak very that, uh, that people, lot. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah, wow. yeah. People speak very well of um, 
Blondie and Debbie Harry in particular mm. at that time. Mm. She um, seems to, um, you know, compared to maybe slightly hipper people such as Patti Smith, she um, seems to, um, people seem very loyal to her. Was, she was very, very down to earth and another person who didn't take success um, lightly, didn't let it go to her head. Yeah. She was good. Um, Patti Smith's stories about Patti Smith, my first ever trip to New York. Um, we were in the same hotel, the Gramercy Park. She was she was nice, nice yeah. lady. Um, but it, yeah, you're right. There's a kind of cool aloofness develops in the uh, in the in, in later times, with which you would have people. known about because you would have you might have, you were probably in a more cool aloof gang ten decades previously, maybe. Uh, could have been. Um, I don't know. I was always in awe every time we came to yeah. London and met important people. I'd be, uh, oh my yeah. god, I just met. No, and uh, yeah, anyway, no, pe- people I met, blah blah um, blah. <laughs> no, we want to know about the people you met. Um, I want to ask you briefly about Mark, you know, Marky Smith, who obviously we lost fairly recently. Mm. Um, yeah. Did you were you aware of him as the four were just coming up and making their first yeah. record? Yeah, because um, we being in Man- based in Manchester, we would go out to gigs to see who was who was playing, um, and. A great thing that happened in Manchester probably happened here as well. Um, you get four or five acts on one night on a bill, yeah, uh, a bit like the old 1960s review shows. Mm. And uh, the Chiswick Challenge, Chiswick Stiff Challenge, and all that kind of thing were taking place at uh, Rafters and Fagan's nightclubs. Um, so there was a, a constant turnover of acts to go and watch, and the fall were definitely amongst the uh, um, tick tick this horse, you know this is going to be a runner. Um, as were I mean, sometimes not people that I thought would make it. Um, I'm trying to think of like the distractions should have made it. Yeah, didn't. Yeah, uh, didn't quite get there. What do, what do people make? Yeah, I'm trying to imagine sort of the reactions of maybe people that have been on the scene for a while. When you see the young Marquis Smith doing this thing that we got so used to over the years mm. that it almost felt like it had always been there. But to see that as a new thing for the first time, and to maybe not even have that much of a frame of reference for it, what could you sort of set that scene for? To, me? to be honest, a lot of the old school musicians, those sixties players, uh, were very dismissive of, of it. Um, we, on the other hand, blah blah, we <laughs> we thought it was a breath of fresh air because we'd been very involved in the pub rock thing, which was that. Same idea, I think. Yeah. Um, but I remember a letter that Tony Wilson got after he'd had Buzzcocks on Granada Reports, and it said, uh, "As a professional musician of twelve years standing, uh, I've decided never to touch my guitar again. If you, while you play this rubbish on television, put this. These people can't play and they can't sing." And we were in hysterics reading this letter. Well, you know you're yeah. onto something when you start getting letters like that. Yeah, I guess you know yeah. you're onto something, don't yeah. you? I mean, the the the, the outrage that uh, I mean, Pete, the most innocuous of people. Mm. Um, mm. I was in a pub with him one night, and this bloke was a, he kept look group of people. And this bloke kept looking and going like that. And Pete said, "Oh, always oh, recognised. This would be over in a minute." And uh, this guy came over and said. Uh, are you uh, Pete Shelley from Buzzcocks? And he, he said, yes. And he said, I think you... <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> all burst out laughing. Pete was like all ready to get his pen out to sign an autograph. It's kind of easier to handle in a way, I would think, when someone, you know, it's, it's almost easier to handle an insult than it is to handle a compliment, I think, sometimes. Uh, um, yeah, but there's, that level of animosity, though, was uh, that, that wasn't particularly nasty, but there was... Uh, there were punch-ups. There were people who were attacking punks in the street. And I remembered the same when we were hippies, we were attacked in the street. Uh, Manchester, uh, <laughs> this uh, a town called Malice on occasion. And the fights with uh, the the folk music traditionalists versus the folk modernists at the time of Dylan. Where, uh, somebody got, a friend of mine got uh, cornered in a chip shop in Withenshaw in 1966 and they pinned him against the wall. And this bloke just went, Dylan or Donovan? And and he went, uh, Dylan. He said, right answer. Oh left my him word. alone. <laughs> like, what? It's going to get hammered. Cause he I mean, in Donovan. fairness, <laughs> uh, it, you know, if you were going to ponder your options at that time, given that choice, you would be better off saying Dylan because you would. It, it would be very likely that the implication of that question would have been that Donovan is the, a, kind of an imitator, a charlatan, a faker, or whatever. And yeah, anyone who would yeah. feel strongly about that would probably be erring on the side of Dylan. Maybe. Well, you'd it, have to. Th- it was the right card to play it. You'd have to time. think quickly, though. <laughs> okay. Well, this seems like a good opportunity to talk to. So obviously, you were at the legendary Free Trade Hall concert, um, and. And you and you wrote a book around that tour. Mm. Um, I mean, it seems an obvious idea, but no one had. I don't think anyone had written. But you were the first person to. No one prior to you, I think, had written no. a, a book about that moment and about that no. tour. Um, I was. Um, I, I was doing a PhD, musicology, um, which came out eventually as Shake, Rattle, and Rain: History of Popular Music Making in Manchester, and it was a chapter in that. Um, and I sensed several people said, "Wow, you know, this would be uh, a, make a really good book." And I sent it off to several people, several publishers, um, and Helter Skelter were the only ones who said, "Yeah, okay, right, give it a go." Um, and then I put an I had an article in the Evening News that said this thing called Mr Manchester's Diary and uh, the guy who was editor of that put were you at the famous concert and uh, we got quite a few responses and I went around and interviewed these people and got the most amazing stories and it, it's another planet it's another time it's in black and white it's another world um, of what people went through to go to those gigs or just incredible stories and, and that was the book get, came from that and did you have a mix of people some of whom you know maybe still held on to the view that you know it was a sacrilegious of him to yeah. get electric did you hear okay. yeah um the, the, we never at that point we didn't find judas um the person we, who we, shouted judas yeah. yeah um but then andy kershaw read the book and got very excited and we did a doco for um, Radio One called The Ghost of Electricity and it was a two hour long documentary and he was just about to uh, we were just about to record it in the Free Trade Hall with these participants people who'd been there and he got home one night there's a message on his answer phone that said uh, I'm the man who shouted Judas um, and he lived in Canada and he flew over at his own expense just wow. to prove that he wasn't in it for the money but the thing is um, there was a guy called Keith Butler um, we were 
he had certainly booed Dylan, and he's certainly the bloke in Eat the Document who goes, you're rubbish, you want shooting. It's a disgrace. Pop groups play better rubbish than that. Um, <laughs> and that's definitely him. Um, but the guy who was with him, he said, look, did he shout Judas? And he said, I, can't, I honestly can't remember. He shouted, but I don't know if it was him who shouted Judas. Just hit, uh, but then another guy came forward uh, called John Cordwell, um, after we'd done the radio documentary and uh, it was him because there were like three or four people who were there with him said oh yeah we told him he was a pillock and, <laughs> and the funny thing is both of them have died and uh, that goes to Sherry well, could it be there. that more than one person had shouted Judas no there's, well on the tape obviously there's only one there's only one so, what, so one person is lying one person shouted Judas but I think Keith just was because he'd shouted rubbish or whatever Hmm. Um, thought that he'd shouted Judas. Uh, right, okay. Uh, it's a, yeah. How, it's did he come to, re did he revise his... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. you know, the, because, um, I mean, it's preposterous because Dylan, a year before, had put out like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't any great surprise. But then, um, not everybody had heard these things. Um, there's one guy I interviewed... Um, called Steve, who up to that point had every Dylan album, but had never heard them because he didn't have a record player. Right, okay, yes. But, and he, yes. Used to, he used to read the LP covers and, and sniff them and things like that um, and look for clues. They were roadmaps to our souls, you know. And uh, so it, it's that idea of you wouldn't... It's possible not to have really been aware of Maggie's Farm and like a Rolling Stone and Positively Fourth Street. Well, it's entirely yeah. possible because this was, this was an era of you know there was only one national, one legitimate at any rate national yeah. radio station yeah. playing pop music. Yeah, which wasn't even Radio One. It was yeah. the light program which had restricted needle time. Yeah, um, and I only ever met one person who went to more than one gig. You know, like now they go to every yeah, single yeah. gig, and this was a guy who hitched from who went to the Liverpool one and hitched to Manchester for yeah. the Manchester one, um, and that was a. And you didn't know. I mean, we read things in the New Musical Express that I think the oh, and Melody Maker had got uh, a front page of him being booed in Dublin, hmm. so he knew something was going on, but you had no idea what to what extent so we got there and you're 16 and you go in and in the queue there's people go if he plays with a group he'll come to his senses we'll make him see sense and the Manchester University Folk Society voted not to go uh, in <laughs> protest which I'm sure really affected him uh, the Glasgow University Socialist Society voted at what point they would stand up and walk out did, did you know uh, going to that gig? Did you know what you were likely to to think about? No. Did, did, so you came went with a completely thinking. I might hate it. I might actually love it. I think that I, I think I went with the idea that I'd love it because I I loved bringing it all back home and Highway yeah. sixty one revisited. Um, so I was I was aware of what was going on, but at the same time the 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 level of um, hatred. I like no, I hadn't experienced anything like it before in my life, and uh, it's it like Brexit. <laughs> you know, it was that divisive. <laughs> to be honest, I think there were probably only a few dozen people who were booing and hand clapping, but at the time it felt like 
and what hurt me most was um, how could they do this to Dylan the great one which is very quickly was the I wrote about a, a, a girl walking forwards up to the front of the stage and handing Dylan a note and Dylan read it and then bowed and blew her a kiss and she walked back to much applause and you can hear it just before leopard skin <laughs> pillbox hat and I, and I met her and her mate and I said look I think it was 30 years before I said look what was in the note and she said oh so, so embarrassed now it said tell the band to go home really yeah oh well, you know what and that that has to be the truth because it's not it does she doesn't you know that's obviously you wouldn't you don't it, it doesn't reflect well on her so well, it's very admirable of her to yeah, actually we all thought be she'd on. given her phone number or something like that and uh to hear that to hear her say tell the band to go home was, uh, how admirable of her to and be she, she was great that. she was on the radio documentary and uh, she turned up at the the book signings and things like that uh, she was she was excellent i must seek it out so this with the exception of um one uh, a track by johnny marr newtown velocity mm. um which is from 2013 this uh compilation that this story kind of ends in the mid 90s with with oasis yeah. um and prior to that you have in spiral carpets stone roses happy mondays um why end it? Was there a reason for sort of ending it? Did it seem like seem like the the right place to end I th- it? I think the mid nineties covers. You know, you get you, you go from sixty to ninety five. Um, you might be flailing around now. There is still great groups making great music in Manchester, um, but they haven't quite stood the test of time yet. Um, also, it's time for somebody else to take over from me being a kind of keeper of the flame of it. Yeah. Somebody who's been going to see more. I, I very rarely venture out to see groups anymore because I find it find it too loud. Well, like so you've been doing a whole lifetime. I think it's entirely yeah. reasonable. Well, I've, I've lost a lot of hearing, and I, right. I wear hearing aids, and it's difficult to go to gigs now. Um, in fact, I've never heard the CDs. But you've. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> But you are active, and we can seek you out. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, you're playing, you're making music still. Yeah, um, on a very, very quiet ukulele. Um, uh, but I play, I sing with a five-part harmony group wow. called, called Vocal Harem, um, where we do a thousand years of popular music. Uh, we go from really hardcore, ancient uh, modal harmony chants to. Uh, uh, do up through to uh, our takes on Tom Waits and stuff like that. And how long has that been a going concern? I've been doing that for about four years now. It's just, it's just a five of us who really love singing together, and we're lucky enough that people say, "Oh, can you do? You want to come along and do a gig?" So uh, we we do that as a, um, a hobby. And then I've got a just one Alberto, which uh, every summer I emerge from my chrysalis like a, a butterfly. A musical butterfly instead of <laughs> great patterns on them have musical notes um, and I assault audiences with uh, uh, tales of being on the road with the Albertos and uh, performing uh, an, uh, an amusing selection of Albertos I've actually moved on from the ukulele alone solo now to the git box a four string guitar which I've now roped in as well so <laughs> Wow, that's that's impressive that you're still sort of up for learning new instruments. Um, well, oddly, okay. when I first took up the ukulele about ten years ago, I thought, 
why did I waste all those years on six strings when four <laughs> is brilliant? And now I've got a four-string guitar. So uh, I it, didn't know that. I'm such applying a thing. these I, techniques. I had no so. idea such a thing was. Uh, well, as, li- as long as people want to hear amusing anecdotes about being in a an almost made it iconoclastic beat group from the 1970s I'm in with a chance you are, certainly are and I can see why because um, you are you know your, your your command of an anecdote is second to none and you've I can give you a brilliant Frank Zappa one to finish oh, on yeah, please. with Jerry and the Holograms go on he, he went potty about Jerry and the Holograms and so for people who don't know, Jerry and the Holograms, who are represented on, on the yeah. CD, those sort of, the sort of your electronic duo. Yeah, John John Scott was in the second wave of the Albertos and we were, we'd got a day in the studio messing around and we'd got an early synth. Um, and I actually wrote the lyrics on the bus to the studio. Most people would use paper. I, I wrote on a bus. We get there and I've got this idea because somebody told me that if you smash the hologram, all the fragments contain the image. So, right, okay, so we get that. I'm Jerry and the Holograms. First, there were 16 of me, but I am just one man. So, we did this stupid little thing. Um, and it came out on Absurd. And Absurd deliberately gave no information out about the artists. We were just Jerry and the Holograms. Anyway, Frank Zappa picks it up. And um, over the years, he played it a lot in New York and he played it on his Radio 1, my favourite top 20 records wow. in this country. But the story is that in New York, he was on the Dick Cavett show and he said, there is this great group from Manchester, England called Jerry and the Holograms. A great group from England called Jerry and the Holograms. I know very little about them, but I believe they are a husband and wife duo from Sheffield. She plays the keyboards and he sings. So I am a husband and wife from what Sheffield. What the hell? Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and you did. Uh, and was, uh, there were two singles, weren't there? And there was one. And one was was the oh the Emperor's New Music, which was uh, very uh, rare. Which, uh, uh, well, that was the world's first unplayable single, um, and so we this glued it inside the sleeve. It was glued inside the sleeve. Yeah, so you couldn't get it out. Wow, um, and the idea of and it was the single. The single itself was blank, wasn't it? Uh, no, I think it. Some of them were uh, Chris Seavey and the Freshies singles that we painted black. Oh, really? Uh, we had a spare box because <laughs> it was limited to a hundred, uh, hundred copies. Um, they must and, go for a bit now. Surely oh, they go for a bit. Original ones go for a whack. I can't believe it. And uh, the whole thing was a joke. There was also Charlie the Cheese Plant, but we never released that. We. Discovered that you could attach um, galvanic skin response meters to plant leaves, and they they emit noises. Really. Um, so we had this idea of a, you know, pictures of a limo with a cheese plant in the back with shades on and s- surrounded by beautiful <laughs> girls and whatnot. Uh, but that never came out. Nor did um, a day in the life of a house, which was to put a tape recorder in every room in a house, record for 24 hours, and then compress it to three and a half minutes. This is, these are quite forward. These are sort of all things that you could, would you would half expect to find in a gallery in in the in the, in the ensuing century. Yes, and, and proves that the Albertos were a bunch of pretentious wankers, or or a kind of a, or, a, or an intuitive outsider <laughs> art expeditionary of the first order. Outsider art. That was us. Yeah, great. Right, well, C.B. Lee, do people, is it, in day-to-day life, is it just Chris or Christopher? Uh, you can call me Chris, but don't call me late for lunch. 
Okay, CP Lee, it's been a joy to meet you. Thank you very much. I thank feel you, like Pete. I've met you several times before, but um, thank you very much and thank you for this amazing compilation. Thank you. Take care. See you soon. <laughs> For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.